often say that the Christian has three great enemies. There is Satan, the world, and sin. Satan, who according to our Savior was a murderer from the beginning and is engaged in hurling fiery darts at all, including you disciples of Jesus Christ, also has an army of fallen spiritual beings against whom the Christian is always engaged in battle. Beings who rule and have authority in a realm where they have cosmic powers over the present darkness. They're spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Which explains, beloved, just why the battle seems so difficult at times. It's by not facing this reality that causes us to underestimate the intensity of the battle we're engaged in. It is the engagement with this enemy that Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 10 through 13. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Satan, beloved, as an enemy, is a deadly foe who, as Hebrews says, has the power of death and is the one who seeks to keep men and women in its bondage until the bitter end. The world, our second enemy, refers to all the temptations and the trials and the torture that this fallen world contains. It seeks to allure men and women into sin by deceit and subtlety. It seeks to break the back of faith and bring men and women to curse God by their trials in this world. And it seeks to make them deny God and defy his will by torture and oppression. It's Peter who speaks of the defilements of the world. And Jesus referred to the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire or lust for other things as choking matters that cut men and women off from the gospel and from the life it brings, leaving them in that death that comes from sin. It's Paul who says that if we live according to the flesh, we will die. And it is John who warns all, saying in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. In the book of Proverbs, you read in Proverbs eleven nineteen this, Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but he who pursues evil will die. 
We're hearing a great deal about groomers right now, those who are committed to leading others into a perverse and decadent lifestyle. The truth is, beloved, that the whole spirit of worldliness, with all its enticing allurements, is grooming men and women and boys and girls for death. These folks are, many of them unwittingly, serving as the epitome of the world's deceiving allurement into eternal ruin. The third enemy is sin itself. The first two of these enemies arise from without. This last one, sin, arises from within. And it makes men and women a danger to themselves by deceit and by lust and by blindness. The Lord warns us by Jeremiah the prophet, saying in Jeremiah 17:9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Peter refers to this rising of sin in us as the corruption that is in the world because of sinful lust or desire. And James speaks eloquently of the work of sin in the hearts of men and women. He says this in James chapter 1, verse 14, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The Lord says by the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 18.4, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. All of our enemies, beloved, bring us to the same end. Death. In fact, the scripture makes it plain that in Adam all die. Paul teaches us in Romans, in chapter 5 and verse 12, that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. So the one great and inevitable enemy is death itself. It's overtaking all of us. We're not all at the same distance from it, but we are all heading in that direction every one of us. And the question becomes, is there any way to escape this relentless enemy? Is there any way to get away from death? And the answer from heaven, from the God who made us and gave us life to start with, is yes. The one whose word is law, whose promise cannot be broken, is Yes. This message of life is the gospel, or what we call the good news of life through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was sent by the Father to be the plague of death, even the death of death, for all who believe in him. By the prophet Isaiah, God has promised that he will swallow up death forever in Isaiah 25, 8. 
And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. By the prophet Hosea, he speaks saying in Hosea thirteen fourteen, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. And so the maker of heaven and earth and all things in them, the God who gave us life, has rescued all who believe from Satan, the world, and sin by sending his own son to die for us on the cross at Calvary. And it's by this act that God has shown to us his great love. And there's no more beautiful passage in Scripture than the one that John gives us in 1 John 4, 9 through 10. In this, says John, the love of God was manifested, displayed, put out before us all, toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son to the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the payment, the substitute payment for our sins. The conclusion then is that despite the murderous intentions of all our enemies, Satan, the world, and sin in us, God, by grace, through the Lord Jesus Christ, has promised us life. Paul writes by the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 21 saying this, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. And if you believe, beloved, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that he offered himself as the propitiation for your sins, you are prepared to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fearing no evil. If that's your testimony this morning, if that's the character of your faith. This then, beloved, is the message of the gospel. That you who are Christians believe in and rejoice in, with a joy unspeakable, as the scripture says. And with all that in mind, we turn to our text this morning. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 29. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29, as we work our way through these great testimonies of faith, we read this. By faith, they, that is the Israelites, Moses and the Israelites passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. Now, the Jews, after the judgment of the Passover, had been given leave by Pharaoh to depart Egypt and head for the land of promise. We, many, I think everybody here knows that or has heard that at some time before. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and after he had given that permission, 
and the Jews had left the land in mass, he was jealous of them as slaves. If you look at Exodus chapter 14 and verse 5, you read this, Exodus 14, 5, Moses tells us there, now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled. And the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, why have we done this? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he that is Pharaoh made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the children of Israel and the children of Israel went out with boldness. With that boldness, the people of God had made their way to the shores of the Red Sea. Where, when Pharaoh and his army arrived, they found themselves completely hemmed in. The sea was before them to the east. The wilderness, with its bare and its cruel mountains, closed them in on either side. And Pharaoh, with his army, was bearing down on them from the west. Now we read earlier from Exodus 14 of the fears and the complaints of the people and the admonition and prayer of Moses. Moses said to the people who complained to him, Don't be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Moses says that, and then he begins a prayer. And you notice, if you remember from our reading, that Moses' prayer is met with a mild rebuff from the Lord, who calls Moses and the people to take action. In Exodus 14, verse 15, it says this, And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Another way that could be translated is, Be quiet. Be quiet. Stop praying. Stop calling on me in that way. Instead, tell the children of Israel to go forward. And then he tells him to lift up his rod and to stretch out his hand over the sea. And the Lord promises that even though Pharaoh is intent on destroying them, he will protect them and bring them over on dry ground. And he will then deal with the Egyptians and bring glory and honor to himself. As you think of this scene, beloved, it's so familiar. There was one at this critical moment, one sure way of death at this critical moment. It wasn't turning and going back to Pharaoh. They might surrender to Pharaoh and live on to be slaves. They could have done that. They could have thrown up their hands, thrown down their weapons and said, we'll go back and and we'll be slaves. They might have run to the mountains 
And some of them might have been able to hide from Pharaoh in, in the crevices and in the caves and in those mountains. And they might have even been able to survive there in that wilderness for a time. But the one certain way of death was marching into that sea. That was the certain way of death. But there was something that made doing that the safest course and the way of escape and life for them. And that thing, beloved, was the word and the promise of God. He said, move forward into the sea and you will cross it on dry ground, all of you, and come to the land of promise. Faith offered them what Dixon calls an unexpected outgate. It was Pharaoh, the wilderness, or the sea. But the sea was the outgate. Guge says, Faith made these Israelites adventure to go to the bottom of the sea, for terrible things do not affright believers. Now this is set before you in Hebrews 11 as one of the notable examples of faith. And whenever something's set before us that way, the first thing we ask is, well, why? Why is this here? And this event is mentioned here because, among the great acts of faith because to march off in the direction that God had appointed required having faith in the substance of things hoped for the evidence of things not seen. The word and the promise of God concerning what was going to happen when they turned and walked into that sea. It required them to come to God and believe that he is who he says he is. That he can indeed divide the sea and make that wet sea bottom dry ground so that they can cross over in safety. To believe that he is the one who the winds and the waves obey. And that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. They then watched as something that they, nor anyone else for that matter, had ever seen before begin to take place. Moses stretched forth his rod and the sea began to open up making a dry path to the other side and the promised land. As John Calvin says, it's obvious that not everyone in this mixed multitude believed or had faith. But God showed mercy, and he granted that by the faith of a few, the multitude should pass through. The death threatened by the debts the death threatened by the breadth of the sea, the death threatened by the hostility of the sea. Those things were all neutralized by the word and the promise of God. The word and the promise made to Israel. The water, as it stood like a wall on either side of them, presented no threat. 
You sit here this morning and you're not casting a nervous eye towards the walls, are you? As you're sitting here, wondering if maybe they're going to collapse in on you and then the whole roof's going to fall down us and we're all going to die. Are you sitting here with that kind of concern? No, certainly not. You're not even thinking about it, are you? And that's the way they crossed over. They didn't even have to think about that because the word and promise of God was keeping them secure. Sometimes the Israelites are portrayed as running with almost reckless abandonment through the the path God opened, eyeing the waters on either side with fear and and thinking that any moment it might collapse on them. There's not a thing in the divine record that suggests that. Nothing. The promise of God made that path safer than any other path thoroughfare. The scripture puts it emphatically. In Psalm 66, verse 6, we read, he turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. Uh, There did we rejoice in him. Hmm. So in the middle of the sea, they rejoiced in the Lord. They weren't looking and saying, oh, oh, this is going to collapse and kill me. But they were rejoicing in the Lord as they went through. That's what they were doing because of the security they had in the promise of God. In Psalm 106, verse 8, yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry. And he led them through the deep as through a desert. It's through a desert. And it's the Lord himself who led them through. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. There's nothing hasty or fearful, intimated or suggested by those expressions, beloved. But notice what Hebrews says next. The Egyptians attempting to do the same thing were drowned. The Egyptians sought to take the same path, but for them it was a way of death. And what made the difference? Simply this, the Egyptians had no word or promise from God. And so the way of seeming death was exactly that for them, the way of death. And they were drowned in the sea, mired in the way that had been dry and safe for the people of God. Calvin says this, Whence was this difference? But that the Israelites had the word of God and that the Egyptians were without it. That disastrous event was the punishment of their temerity or their impudent boldness. As on the other hand, the Israelites were preserved safe because they relied on God's word and refused not to march through the midst of the waters. Now, beloved, I think the analogy here speaks for itself. All of us, every one of us, are marching towards a critical juncture or moment. The enemy is bearing down on us like Pharaoh on Israel. Satan and his underlings 
are threatening every day. And men and women, boys and girls, can surrender to him and be his slaves. But in the end, that's the way of death. There's no other end for those who turn their bodies and souls over to the one who was a murderer from the beginning. Why put trust or confidence in a deceiver who is known to be a murderer from the beginning? You can flee to the world, and so many do. They try to find life in the world and the things of the world. But like that wilderness around the children of Israel, the world is a barren, fruitless place. Its ways are the ways of death. Just like those who are lured into deviant lifestyles will find no real peace and will find no real satisfaction there, despite all the promises to the contrary. The whole allure of the world is one empty promise that leaves the soul parched and desperate. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, Paul says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The only safe course for us, beloved, is to face death with the word and the promise of God that in the Lord Jesus Christ you will cross through the seas of death on dry ground. That none of its supposed fears or anxieties or any of its threats will be anything to you because you are safe and secure in the word of God. So you can look at death, not afraid that its walls are going to fall in on you, but you can look at it in peace and go through it rejoicing. Paul writes again by God the Holy Spirit to the Colossians in chapter 2. and verse 13 he says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, canceling out sin's threat of death. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Even the threats of that unseen spiritual world. All our enemies, beloved, have been neutralized by grace. And as David Dixon says, believers shall escape where unbelievers shall drown. Now a word of warning for those without this word of promise. Those who may not believe God's word concerning his son sent to pay the price for sin, that is death, in your behalf. You may, like Pharaoh and his army, go charging into death's dark depths. But it will be nothing more to you than death itself. You will find yourself thrown into utter darkness 
that place where there will be endless weeping and gnashing of teeth. Know that to enter into death without Christ is a challenge against God's own word. And that is a challenge you cannot hope to win. We are professing believers, but every man, every woman, every child knows his or her own heart. And I appeal to you, if you are without Christ this morning, to recognize that this is a challenge you cannot hope to win. You're headed towards this moment, and the only safe way through it is in Christ. The Egyptians literally, this passage says, put God to the trial. And it ended just as you might justly expect. God got glory in them by their death. I'll close by addressing all this once more as a means by which you as believers may be salt and light in this dark world. You who are in Christ today are the safest people in the world. The world doesn't understand death or its consequences. And that ignorance produces either a superstitious or a romanticized view of death or a dreadful fear of it. You either dream that we're all going to be a part of the great cosmic flow or you're scared to death. They either go marching into it with foolish notions that will soon be drowned in reality or they go trembling and mired in a just sense of guilt. And those who have the word and promise of God are the ones who carry the message of life to those in that condition. And there are three things that we can do. There are many things we can do, but I'm going to offer three here. The first is to stand for the preciousness of life itself. In Job chapter 29, verse 17, Job is talking about the things that he did. And he said, I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. By treasuring the sanctity of life, the importance of life beyond this world is highlighted. We're a people who believe that life is a precious thing, both here and forever. And as we make that stand for the preciousness of life, and in whatever context, I'm not referencing any particular context here, but in whatever context life is threatened, As we make our stand for that, we make it clear that life is a precious thing and something to be valued. And then we can go beyond that and say, life is indeed precious and your life is coming to an end. And if you believe too that life is precious, then you need to come to Christ because in him you find true life and eternal life. And nothing is lost. Second thing we can do is bear witness to the word and promise of God by making the gospel known. Beloved, you are 
his witnesses. In Isaiah 43, verse 10, the Lord says this to his people, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. You are his witnesses about the truth of this word, the comfort it gives to you, um, the joy it gives to your heart, the life that it gives you through him. And that brings us to the third thing. You can be a servant to those who are lost in sin and darkness by facing death for yourself and your loved ones in the Lord with faith. Assured of the things hoped for, convinced of the things not seen, and drawing near to God, believing that he is, that is, he is truly God and and the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By showing confidence in God, in his divine attributes, in his presence, in his providence. And that is all the ground of courage. And beloved, we can walk into the Red Sea of Death without fear, but with joy because of the promise that we have from the Lord. And when we do that, and when we bear testimony to that, for those that we love in the Lord, and we we know that they've gone to their reward in the Lord, and we rejoice as they, they pass through that death into the presence of the Savior, we bear testimony to the world. Sometimes some of you see it. Sometimes you don't see it. I think maybe Chaplain... Uh, Lubke sees it from time to time. But uh, it's my habit to stay at the graveside until the work is finished, just to make sure that respect and order are shown. And I've been there with many of you at different times. And I want to tell you again and again that talking to those workers both representing the funeral home and those who are working in the cemetery, they know the difference. They know the difference. They know people who come to that cemetery with real hope and real faith and real confidence in the gospel and those who aren't, who don't. And they'll tell me. They'll tell me that's the case. They'll they'll say... This was a blessing to be a part of because I was with people who believe. People have trust in the gospel. Trust people who believe in what Christ has promised. I can't tell you how many times I've been told that after everybody else is gone. So they don't say it to all the people gathered there. They say it afterwards because there's a lingering testimony. It's not the same. It's different. These are people who see their loved ones in the Lord marching through dry ground because of Christ and his promise. By showing confidence in God, in his attributes, his presence, and his providence, you bear testimony. In Psalm 91, verses 1, 2, and 4, we read, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. 
He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler in life and in death. We are those who confess with Paul. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I should choose, Paul said, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul's telling them right where they stand, right? Isn't he? I want you all to know to be with Christ is far better than being with you. But it's better for you that I'm here, and so I'm content with whichever God calls on me to do. John Owen reminds us that wherever we find God's word and promise engaged, there is nothing that true faith cannot believe and act upon. Whatever God can do, whatever he promises to do, we by faith can trust and act on. When we enter what appears to be a place of danger, knowing that by God's word we'll be preserved from the fury of all our enemies, Satan, the world, and sin itself, we bear testimony to the glory and grace of our God. And we reflect the same faith reflected by the Israelites when they marched into that sea and crossed over on dry ground. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for the promise of your word. And Lord, we know it is backed by all that you are as the living God. Father, we pray that you would increase our faith and our courage. And Lord, may we look at death not as the great monster, but as our crossing over on dry ground into all that is promised us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we bear witness to that in the way we talk, in the way we think, in the way we live. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who is looking in the face of death without your promise in Christ, Lord, please press upon their hearts the futility of that. Help them to see that they will have an Egyptian end if they march into death without your word and your promise. And Lord, let this be the day of salvation for them. Let this be the day when they confess their sins and call upon you for mercy. Please, Lord, be at work for your own namesake, for your own glory. And Father, we pray that you would have your hand upon each one of us. That Lord, increasing our faith, our confidence in you and your word, we will go forth in joy, remembering that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Thank you, Father, for giving us this promise and for taking away all fear of Satan, of the world, of sin, of death itself, by sending your Son to die for us. Thank you, Father. 
Please receive our thanks. In Jesus' precious name, amen.